I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. I am proud to say that this episode is made possible by the wonderful people at Hatch Outdoors. There's a reason you've been seeing Hatch on all the guideboats these days, and the reason is that quality gear is invaluable when it comes to landing that fish of a lifetime. I've been using Hatch Reels since their first year of business, and I can honestly say that when it comes to confidence in my equipment, Hatch has never let me down. Every component of a Hatch Reel is proudly made in the USA, but it's their prompt customer service that really shines through. Hatch supports the industry, the economy, and the environment. Check them out at www.hatchoutdoors.com. Lacey Kelly is a fishing and hunting guide based out of Florida. A dear and longtime friend of mine, she has been a part of my bow hunting journey from day one. Not only did I accompany her on my first hunt, but she even gave me my first bow. She's a wealth of knowledge and I was excited to learn more about her upbringing and how she became the skilled outdoors woman she is today. I was able to grab Lacey for a quick interview while at ICAST in Orlando. I was born in Fort Myers, Southwest Florida. Are your parents both Floridians? Yes, I am. I think on my father's side, I'm fifth generation Floridian. Mom's side was a little bit mingled. There's some Canadian. Yeah? Yeah. Maybe that's why we connect. (laughs) I think there's probably a few reasons why we connect. Oh, sure. I feel like you're the girl everybody has seen, like everyone's seen photos of you and sees you on social and has heard of you because you've been around for a long time now. Like I mean, I say that, and of course, the guys listening who are like 70 years old are going, a long time, hey, Misty, back in my day. But you know, you've been around for a while. You're not one of the new faces in the industry as okay. such, and nobody really knows anything about you. I mean, I live in the middle of the woods for a reason. <laughs> right. <laughs> I choose very desolate places to inhabit. Were your parents fishers? Um, I think just all around outdoorsmen. You know, I grew up hunting and fishing. I wasn't allowed to play sports because we hunted and fished every weekend, depending on what season it was. Really primarily though, spearfishing. Oh, okay. So really grew up underwater more so probably than actual back bay fishing and the things that I particularly have turned into a career as far as, you know, my guiding and everything like that. So spearfishing is like my dad's thing and a family thing, and it's pretty cool. And then you have a brother? I have a brother, so he grew up doing the same thing, but he's a little bit more on the technological side of things. He's he's a very talented uh, computer engineer, so we're polar opposites, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And then the hunting? And the hunting thing was essentially because it was too cold for my dad to go spearfishing that we ended up in the woods, I think. But a lot of that comes, too, from feeding our family. I mean, we we were by no means, I, I was not raised a trophy hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our activities in the outdoors were very much so like centered around eating. What, what can we can, what can we consume, whether you're scalloping or lobstering or hunting deer, birds, you know, everything that you could possibly think of. What about in school? Did you have like-minded friends or were you kind of the weird girl? No, no, I, I was pretty normal. I don't think a lot of kids in school really knew I was probably as outdoorsy as I was. 
I was all, you know, class president, like homecoming queen, you know. So this is, you were a normal I had kid a, growing yeah, up. Totally. Yeah, totally. I just didn't play a whole lot of sports. I swam a few years in school after I was driving and was no longer dependent on interrupting my family's hunting and fishing <laughs> schedule. Um, but that's about it. I, my whole entire life has been centered around hunting and fishing. So naturally, it was just a progression into a career. So how did that happen? What's the first step there? Well, you, first you have to start dating a fishing guide when you're 16. No, so, I was like, oh no, you're not going down that road. But you didn't, did you? I totally did. I, it just happened. It was my, my first boyfriend was a fishing guide and then it was just a progression of dating fishing guides probably ever since then. So did a boyfriend get you into guiding? No, actually um, a, a past husband probably. He was a guide and I was starting to run his business and you know, just became more of like a guide team. Mm-hmm. And and it definitely helped. I think I think it's very hard to start as a female saltwater guide without having some some sort of male figure, whether it's your father, a boyfriend, husband, etc., um, or a very close friend that that really takes you under their wing. Because there are certainly things that um, that you need their influence. Like what? Um, everything from from just being able to maintain all of your equipment, your boat you know, the, the essential parts that you need in order to, to guide. You have to learn from someone. And for my age group, there really are not a whole lot of older females that are available to mentor and, and try to help, you know, a young female guide. Um, I had a, actually a publication from Sanibel uh, maybe like three or four months ago, maybe a little bit longer, but they called um, up wanting to interview me over the subject line of how there are all these female guides in Florida. And I started laughing and I'm like, oh, really? I'm like, where? Yeah. I can, I I know I can count them all on one hand. When you were married, you were running the business, but you were doing both kinds of fishing when it came to guiding, right? Correct. I I primarily was a conventional fishing guide um, for many years and probably... I'm trying to think now, I don't know, eight years ago maybe, roughly, I started to get in, get into the fly fishing thing. And, and more so that was on a personal level. And then that just progressed because I'm already out there guiding. I already know the fish habits and, and patterns and where I needed to be in order to set up a fly angler that it it just was a progression, essentially. But I definitely started out with a, a conventional bait fishing, throwing the cast net every day background. So I love the photos of you throwing a cast net. <laughs> so without getting too personal, it's so hard because I know so much stuff. <laughs> uh, without getting too personal, where do you go from there? So I, thanks to a good friend of mine, that, well, I would say now, now has become a good friend of mine, but somebody that I think saw my presence on social media and had a a fairly good read about who I was, um, recommended me to go on a Sims photo shoot. And I think that was a little bit of the turning point of, of me really focusing on the fly side and and giving up more or less on the conventional guiding and, and really trying to shift gears. So Carter Andrews had spoke with some of the folks at Sims and a good friend of his, Brian Grossenbacher. And I ended up in Belize on a awesome photo shoot that was probably one of the most like life-changing eye-opening experiences that I've ever had in my adulthood. So 
I really got the itch um, while I was in Belize to to go back to. I I had just couldn't get it out of my head. It was it was pretty amazing. So, with the offer of a newfound friend, um, Will Flack, I ended up going to Belize and helping run a fly shop and basically just trying to figure out and master the notorious <laughs> P-E-R-M-I-T. Uh, yes. <laughs> I feel like you need to spell it out because it's... <laughs> just saying it's like uh, bad luck. Uh, certainly. So I caught my first permanent on fly in Belize on that very first trip, the Sims trip, of course, after the photographer left. I just thought like, oh, this is... I hate to say that I thought it was easy, but I'm like, there's, there's nothing to this. This is like, anybody can go to, I can do it. Golly, anybody could do it. So then you didn't see another permit for like 10 years, basically. Is oh how my that gosh. Goes it was just so taxing. I think I spent, I think it was about a year and a half before I got the, the, the second permit. And I just so happened to catch three all on the same day. It, it was just, a, you did not with Will? Mm-hmm. It was, you. it was the la- very last day that I spent in Belize before I moved back to Florida. So it was pretty, pretty epic. In fact, I really think I could have caught more, but he said I was being greedy. <laughs> oh my God. So he completely cut me off. <laughs> that is really He's funny. Like, no, three is enough. That's really incredibly greedy. It is. It is I'm incredibly like, but, greedy. But I'm like, but. Uh, no, but, just stop. So you go back to Florida. What happens then? That, that was probably the life changer, like eye opener. And I had never traveled outside of the U.S., but maybe once or twice before that. I, I went to St. Lucia and then um, on a trip to Cabo St. Lucas, fly fishing for Marlin with a, a client, like customer, um, and his family. But I'd never really spent an extensive period of time anywhere by myself, you know, just out alone by myself, going on a trip out of the United States. So I think it was a very important time in my life where I was soul searching maybe a little bit. And I got married very young. Like, I was, I was, how old are you now? I'm 32 now, but yeah. I, I was married very young. I, I believe I was like 19 when I got married. Oh my God. Okay. So, you know, more or less without getting into any detail of that, because it's, it's really irrelevant. It's really irrelevant. Um, it was just a turning point. It yeah. was an eye opener and I couldn't get out of my head. And long story short, I went through a divorce and, you know, separated, parted ways. And then I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back to Belize and figure out this whole permit thing. It, re- it really had this, it, it, I, I can't even explain it. It was just this incredible itch. I have lots of those moments, whether I'm bow hunting, you know, a giant white-tailed deer. Turkey hunting also gives me that that racing, pulsating, beating heart permit just make me completely crazy. Yeah. So I just, I couldn't... I couldn't get it out of my head, and that's how I ended up back there. And and then it really, you well, moved there. I honestly didn't think I would. I was moving there. I like, <laughs> I just packed a bag, and I thought, you know, I'll go check it out for like a month. And I just never came home, right? <laughs> Until it was time to go commercial lobster with my dad down in the Keys, and he's like, "Hey, yeah, you're gonna come home now? Like, it's, you know, you've been there for six months or so." I'm like, "Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea." <laughs> so. Long story short, I, I went home for like maybe a, a month at a time each year, and I lived there for a, about, um, it's all kind of foggy, but about three years, I think. And I loved it. I love time flies. I love being in the shop. Um, 
And then just, you know, walking up and down the beach, casting at tailing bonefish and occasional permit. The only thing that, that was very hard for me was that I didn't have my own boat there. And I was so independent and so on my own at home. And I didn't have that resource there. I couldn't legally, you know, drive a boat. I wasn't a resident. I didn't have the permits, the proper paperwork and different things. And if I would have wanted to, I would have had to live there for over six years and yeah. and put a considerable amount of money into getting my citizenship. It's huge. Like if you listen to the Will Flack podcast, and obviously you were there yeah. with Will, right? Right. It's a citizen, not a resident. You have to become a citizen to guide there. You do. And you know, I give them credit for sticking it out. It's it, That's a long, long commitment and a long time. After I got a few permit monkeys off my back um, while I was there, I caught in total four on fly and I had some massive heartbreakers and some some situations that were not only life lessons, but um, major permit lessons on what I did wrong or what the fish did wrong, in my opinion. Because <laughs> there's, I've never, there's jerks. I have never heard that before. Oh, I think fish do things wrong all the time. <laughs> Haven't you ever seen a tarpon missile fly? He's like, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Especially a redfish. Think about all those shots in Louisiana right. where they just look like a goofy dog like trying to get the treat. It's like, oh, I can't get it. Oh, oh, oh no, I missed it again. Oh, 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 oh. Like they do stuff wrong all the time. They're fish. Okay, fair. I'm going to start using that from now on. Every time I miss a fish, it's just totally the fish's fault. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I I put like a little bit of a masculine he spin on that, (laughs) but yes. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway. Coming back to your timeline, you come back. I come back from, from Belize and with no intention of necessarily moving back to Florida, but I spent a couple months back in Florida with my folks commercial spearfishing and diving for lobster. Um, I was approached by Sue Cocking at the time who was writing for the Miami Herald who wanted to write an article about females hunting and specifically hog hunting. In my past travels, um, I had come across someone that I knew had a, a hunting lodge in operation and thought, you know what, maybe I'll give him a call and see if we can do it at his place. So that way gives them a little publicity and I'm not having to take them to family property and, and where I normally hunt. So long story short, the the invite was there. He was like, oh yeah, absolutely. Come on. So I drove up to Florida Outdoor Experience and it really, um, it was another one of those pinnacle, like life-changing moments. Like I, I seriously missed hunting and I in in my past when I in my adulthood especially when I wasn't guiding fishing I was always in the woods hunting so it was a huge part of my life and it it was not only a way to you know sustain myself and and have something to eat um, which it was very important that I ate a lot of venison because it kept the grocery bill down and living the guide's lifestyle you know when you're living charter to charter it's it's very important and. When I was out in the woods, I wasn't really spending a whole lot of money. I was just living off the land, and it was great. So it kind of clicked. It all just kind of clicked back with me. I'm like, this is amazing. And they don't really have anybody necessarily right now that has the potential to do the things that I could do to make it better and make it bigger. So I saw a huge opportunity to be able to come back to guiding, which I was gravely missing while I lived in Belize. And as wonderful as Belize was, 
there's something that makes me wake up every single day and that's being able to share my experience and and the things that I love with other people. After you do them so much yourself, at some point it just turns into guiding. And I don't know I don't know that there's always like some specific time where you're like I'm I'm just going to be this awesome guide, but it just it just progresses and I think that that's what kind of the light bulb went off. I could do both. I could I'd come back like be a fishing guide as well as start to guide hunting and I needed that part of my life. It, it was very important to me. You know, I grew up from a long line of of farmers and cattle ranchers and people that lived off the land. That was my heritage and my ancestry. So I think it's just natural. It's just a natural state of something that you just mold into. Yeah, well, it's in your blood, right? Yeah. Okay, and then did you, so you started working there? Was so, it that simple? So yeah, it, pretty much about maybe two days into the trip. It was like a weekend trip. Um, the owner, Gray Drummond, offered me a job, and I, I just jumped all over it. And it was a great, great move. I am so excited to be able to do both things. Now, is there ever a time in the year where they can book you for like redfish tarpon and a hunt of some sort? Sure. What it's, month would that be? Um, probably May or June. Okay. The The problem with the hog hunting, you definitely have to do like an evening or, or a, a nighttime thermal hunt because it's just so hot right now. But yeah. that just happens to be the time when the tarpon are in. As far as the red fishing, you could do that year round. Okay. We have it. red fishing year round. We have fantastic red fishing, sight casting. You know, I, I try to steer a little bit away from the bait fishing charters nowadays. However, I'm not completely opposed to throwing the cast net every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while. But um, I prefer to do fly trips. So I've really been focusing on that the last five, six years of my life. And I think it's awesome. Can people book you for a day or oh, are they sure. stuck with the week? Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. Cool. I, I do charters, you know, just day charters. I also have packages where you can come in for the weekend. Pretty much all of our hunting guides are also fishing guides. So if you have a large party, we can accommodate that. More importantly, though, I think it's it's really, truly the essence of old Florida. People have no clue. I had no clue. You had no clue. I mean, I fished the Keys before, and that's what I expected when I went to fish with you, and you blew my mind. So can we talk about that? Sure. Okay. Let's explain what old Florida is, because it was an experience in itself. It definitely is. It's... um. It's it's very raw and rugged, but it's also extremely, with that raw and ruggedness, extremely beautiful. It is. And I think a bit of myself, maybe at times, gets desensitized to it because I grew up in it. But when, for example, when you first came, you're like, you did some weird move. You're like, just, just don't say anything. Just like, just stop. And I'm like, what's wrong with her? When we first pulled up to the lodge and you're like, I love this place. I could write here. This is wonderful. This I is this. And you just were like gl- like glowing. I was in a movie from 100 years ago. <laughs> I mean, that house. It was you've so got, cute. You've got to tell some of the story about that house. So that's what probably one of the most amazing pieces of the, the Florida outdoor experience puzzle, essentially. You know, we have a lot of moving parts and a lot of different things that we offer, but it's all centered around this amazing 1900-year-old awesome farmhouse that was, you know, refurbished into a condition that was probably way far better than what it was um, in the past. But it looks, it looks like something 
out of a garden and gun magazine. Well, which magazine was it featured in? It was featured in Country Living right. Architectural Digest. I mean, there's photos of so the quilt. Can you explain the quilting? Yes, there's um, there's some really neat antiques um, throughout the house, one of which in the second living area, you'll see a quilt that's raised to the ceiling with a pulley system. And that was how they used to, the women would sit around, you know, a living area like that, and they would lower the quilt with the pulley system to in order to be able to all work on it at the same time with it stretched out. Yeah. So there's definitely some things that were that were put back into the house that were true to form to the the time period. And what about how the house was found? Are we able to dive into that? So uh, the owner says that he stumbled across it when he was a little boy. Um, his his folks had purchased the property, which is roughly around 600 acres, um, to my knowledge. And they were just kind of hunting around the area, and they they just literally like stumbled upon it. It was all overgrown with much you know, weeds and brush, you know, underbrush that just kind of covered the house. It just wasn't taken care of by the the original owners. Um, so they started kind of ripping things apart and realized that the main structure was still very intact. His parents had the property, mm-hmm. but didn't necessarily know it was there. No, they were just hunting on the property. Gray was saying that the road... The traveling road, like the carriage road, went right by the house. Is that right? Yes. So the way that the house is positioned um, as far as the front porch, it's kind of catty corner turned towards the road that you enter in on, which used to be the old wagon wheel trail to Cedar Key. So that was their entertainment back then. There wasn't anything to do. So they would literally sit on their front porch and wait for somebody to come by. You know, I'm sure having a cocktail or iced tea or some something like that, but it was what they did for fun. Can guests stay in that house? Absolutely. We have a lot of wildlife around the house. You know, oftentimes you'll pull up and there are turkeys or deer in the yard. I've even seen turkeys on the porch. Oh, seriously? (laughs) Right right at the beginning of turkey season this year. I'm like, really? (laughs) Like, really? That's really going to make us look bad. We've got clients coming in tomorrow. Can you like scoot off, please? (laughs) Can you you move? (laughs) Tell me about the turkeys. Why are those turkeys so hard to get? What are they called? The Osceola? Yes, they're called an Osceola turkey, which is a, one of the five subspecies of uh, North American turkeys that you can kill in order to complete what most people chase, which is called their grand slam. It's essentially like it's same in fishing. You know, you're trying to get each species. Some people try to do it all in one year. Some people try to do it in a lifetime. There are definitely some turkey fanatics out there that do multiple slams in one year because they just live, eat, and breathe turkey hunting. <laughs> right. Um, you thought fly fishermen were weird. You need to hang out with some turkey hunters. I went on a turkey hunt uh, a, a few months ago okay. in Idaho, and I definitely started to get my head wrapped around that sort of culture. But why is that particular turkey so difficult? I think you know, there's a lot of reasons I think that people have considered why it's difficult. Um, but first and foremost is predation. Everything that is a predator aside from maybe a, a black bear in Florida, eats turkey. So especially our cats, you know, we have a lot of panthers. We have a lot of bobcats, and they specifically will target, you know, the Osceola turkey, and it's just a little bit easier prey for them to snatch up probably some, than some of the other 
wildlife that's out there. Um, so are they hard to get because there's not very many of them or no, because they're just so they're smart? Just, they're so smart. They're very wary. Um, I would uh, assimilate them to the, the permit of of the woods. So they have incredible eyesight. You'll notice that most of the other subspecies talk a lot. They gobble a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very vocal. Our turkeys, the Osceola turkey, tends to be very quiet. So how do you so, call them in then? So there's times where they're fired up, um, but there's a lot of different tactics that you have to use in order to pull a gobbler in to you. And 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 really in all reality, a lot of it is just a game of, of curiosity. You know, how they say curiosity kills the cat. Well, curiosity kills the Osceola. Yeah, but the problem is, is their vision's so good. So, I mean, and you need like, what are you shooting at, 30, 40 yards? Yeah, at actually, most. yeah, definitely forty yards and younger. If if anything, that's about as far as I would like exactly. client to reach so out there. How do you play with their curiosity when and you're trying to get twenty yards or fifteen yards? So using certain calls at certain times and then shutting up because they can't stand it. They they if they hear they can hear their their hearing is impeccable as well. The only thing that you have going for you as a hunter is that they can't smell. So or they have very little. Um, like scent. sense, yeah. So they they don't have the ability to smell very well, but their hearing and their eyesight is impeccable. So making certain calls at certain times, and then just going like radio silent, oftentimes kills the Osceola curiosity. He he can't help it. He's like, wait a second, I just called back to you. You're supposed to come to me. Why aren't you coming over here? Where are you? And he's just circling around you, trying to figure out like where she is. Or at times you also can emulate like a, a, an immature gobbler, a Jake, and they'll, the same thing. He's like, well, I'm going to go beat him up. Like he can't be uh, in my territory. Um, it, it's essentially like going to the club, really. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a Jerry Springer episode is it what it really, sounds like. It really does. Um, I had a, a good friend of my father's and an excellent turkey hunter, uh, Terry Cook back in Fort Myers, and, and as well as a guide, he told me earlier in the year. He said, "Listen, it's you know you know when girls fight, you know when girls are fighting over a man. Well, what happens is if if you hear another girl call back to you. So if if I'm yelping, doing a hen call, which is a female call, and she calls back to you, I want you to talk over her. I want you to just keep talking over her and just be incredibly rude. And she can't." She can't stand it. She wants to come beat you up. Oh my so God. I tried that this year. And let me tell you, it was it was really intense. I had three hens come in at the same time and then proceed to fight each other. But are you shooting hens? No. But all the while, because all of that's going on, <gasps> the, the gobbler's going to come in can't. as well. They can't stand it because they're hearing all this racket and they're like, Oh, the girls are fighting. Like, we got to go watch this. Like, we got to go check it out. Do they come out. in to break it up or do they come in to just observe? Oh, well, they, they kind of come in to do their thing. <laughs> got it. Coming up, Lacey and I talk about old Florida turkey hunting and bears. Oh, my. Again, thank you to Hatch Outdoors for making this episode possible. 
The tight tolerance between frame and spool means no more tangling with skinny running line that gets trapped and reversed. I've lost some big fish that way and Hatch simply removes the constant checking and worrying. After all, there are more important things to be paying attention to when on the water. Visit Hatch at www.hatchoutdoors.com and be prepared to make one of the best fishing investments you've made so far. So now that I'm wrapping my head around old Florida, mm-hmm. back to the fishing. You go to the Keys and it's just, it's just, it is a little touristy and the fishing can be busy. It's not like there's a lot of big trees or anything. I mean, the deer are like the size of, I don't know, the chair you're sitting on. When you and I were fishing, it was definitely feeling a little more Louisiana sort of vibe. Talk to me about what you find the major differences are. Okay. So where I took you fishing, um, when you came the first time to hang out um, at Florida Outdoor Experience, actually, I believe Gray took us both up into an area in Cedar Key, which is very Louisiana-like. You know, you're you're concentrating on pushes. It's not clear enough water for you to actively necessarily sight fish a fish coming down a shoreline unless you're seeing a push or a wake and, and knowing that, that they're in that area and being able to time it properly. So you got to experience a little bit of an area that I've concentrated on quite a bit. However, I've been moving my focus for the most part down south, um, about anywhere between Cedar Key and Homosassa area. And as the further south that you get, the more the water clears up. And it, it really it kind of mirrors what the Keys look looks like in, in several places. We have a lot of springs that that flow into the area, and which is known for Homosassa Springs and Crystal River, et cetera, that help clean up the water. And just the salinity uh, levels are a little bit different. There's a lot of turtle grass, which you know actively has higher salinity. So it's it's very similar to the Keys, but with a very old Florida feel. And and I say that in the sense that they're as you, for example, you're coming out of the Homosassa River, say we're fishing out of Homosassa, it, you know, it looks a lot like Louisiana in, at, in places with the, the shacks on the water and the, the old, old school, you know, just kind of fish camps essentially. And as you approach, you know, the Gulf and you get a little bit farther out of the river, all of a sudden it just turns into crystal clear flats that look very comparable to the Keys. So we have a lot of same scenarios as far as how the migratory tarpon come through that area and a lot of the same same style of fishing that you would in the Keys. And then there are certainly other spots in that area, in the Nature Coast area, that are, that are not as clear, but maybe you're casting to rolling fish. So excuse my ignorance on the geography, but is the migration then of the tarpon... Uh, the same? I mean, are they just getting to you guys at a different time or is this an entirely different route? <laughs> I really would like you to ask Aaron Adams that tomorrow <laughs> because I I feel like every time I get to put my finger on it, somebody tells me something different and I, I thoroughly trust their opinion. Um, yes and no. They're the same. Some of them are, are certainly the same fish um, according to the, some of the satellite tracking that that Aaron and, and some of the great folks at Bonefish Tarpon Trust and different organizations have done over the years, and the studies um, the studies really just continue to confuse me. Right, <laughs> sounds right. Um, however, in my opinion, yes, there are a lot of the same fish. I think that at times they all move offshore. Um, you'll definitely see that while you're 
in our area or in the Keys or anywhere else, like where I guided out of Sanibel, Captiva, you know, around the full moons and new moons, they oftentimes move offshore to spawn during their migration. Um, for some reason, and I, I still have yet to crack this code or, or really put a good hold on it, but for some reason in the Homosassa area and the Nature Coast area, we have incredibly large female fish that show up. Most of the world records on fly have been taken from that area. And really? I'm, I'm not really, like I said, I, I don't know enough about it to, to even attempt to like give you an answer or make it a judgment or a guess, but it's really quite different in the sense from the, the fishing that you get in the keys that there are larger numbers of bigger fish. Okay. And the pressure, because I know in the Keys that Maybe was Maybe not of, more fish, but larger numbers of bigger, bigger fish. Bigger fish, right. Yes. Uh, in the Keys, I was shocked at the amount of pressure. I felt like there was a lot of pressure. Is, yes. Do you have the same problem where you're at? Oh, certainly. I think anywhere that you're going to tarpon fish along the coast of Florida, you're you're definitely going to have issues with the amount of pressure. I believe in our area and as you approach further up the panhandle, I don't think we have the population size of people necessarily. I I think that really affects the pressure. Okay. So it sounds like a really fascinating fishery. And I understand that you're kind of like the new kid on the block. So you're probably tiptoeing softly. But uh, if people want to book you, I'll post a link in the write-up. How do you feel about the tiptoeing softly and being the new kid again? It's tough. I'm not going to lie. It's been, it's tough, but it's exciting I really thoroughly enjoy the Nature Coast in this, and, and mainly for the reason that there isn't a ton of pressure that you can still go find a flat and look around in 360-degree direction and, and not see another boat. I think that's something special that is truly hard to find still in Florida today. So what's next for you then? You're 32, you're happy... I'm pretty settled. Yeah, what do you want to like? Do you is this where you see yourself in ten years? I think it is. Like I, I honestly really think it is. I, I feel I'm, I'm in a position right now, and I've I've taken Florida outdoor experience to I feel like the next level, and I I see myself continuing to improve it, expand it. Um, it's very important to me as a Floridian, as a native as what we call a cracker, um, the head, and that's not a derogatory term. That's a, this is a very prideful term for us Floridians. So I can call you a cracker and oh, get away with I, it. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, yes. Hey, that cracker. Straight up cracker. Amazing. Okay. All right. <laughs> that's It's not a derogatory term. And, and if you look up the history of, of why it's not a derogatory term, the, the term in Florida came from, Florida cracker came from, the cattlemen, which my family was a huge part of, that would have their cows kind of stuck in tight spaces and they would crack their whips to try to get the cows out of the palmettos, out of the pine trees, because it's not wide open Montana ranch land or Texas. We have very dense areas that you needed to get your cattle out of. So that's where the term came from. Oh, that's not bad. It's cracking your whip. It had nothing to do with any of the other racial. Yeah. Where does that um, even come from? How do we bastardize that? That's a really good question. We'll have to find that out. I think out. you need to podcast Gray and ask him that one. Yeah. No, I should podcast Gray. You should. He is a history lesson in itself. Oh yeah. Okay. Before I let you go, can you just tell me please the black bear story one more time? Oh gosh. 
Do I really have to? Yeah, I love it. I do. I love it. All right, here we go. Um, this is so really it was hard a, it was for a, me to get like fired up about right now. Misty morning. No, it was a misty evening. It was. <laughs> it was a hot afternoon. So it was. It was probably the most frightening experience of my hunting career, for sure. I've had some other experiences, like spearfishing, sharks getting on you, that that certainly brought me to tears or you know chills up your spine. But this, in particular, I really felt like I was going to be like chop suey, like you know, here it goes. Like, this is the end of my life. It's done. It's over. I'm never going to make it out of here. It's never going to happen. There's no way out. And I have nothing to defend myself. My Australian people and my Australian listeners are so afraid of bears. Oh, this is just, they're never going to come here. Do tell, keep going, keep going. (laughs) So, um, this was years and years ago down in the Everglades at a particular spot that I, is very special to my heart and very spiritual in an area where a lot of Indians and past frontiersmen had had maybe passed there, but not very many human beings. So I'm in position. I was, I was not bow hunting at the time I was rifle hunting and, um, it was doe weekend. So we have an allotted weekend in Florida where you can shoot does. Otherwise you can only shoot does during bow season and not during the rest of the other deer hunting season, um, except for that allotted weekend. So that morning I had shot a doe that also had a very uh, mature yearling, which was, you know, borderline considered a doe as well with her. And it was old enough to be on its own. It just happened to be, you know, with her at the time. And I took that doe with no thought process of, you know, seeing that yearling later on. So that morning, you know, I got a deer. It's great skin it out, you know, process the meat and everything, put everything away, went, took a nap, changed pants. This is important because I had a, one of, I had taken all the bullets out of my gun when I got back to camp. So I'd put them in my pocket, not really realizing that I didn't have as many when I got to my stand in the afternoon as I needed. So I thought that I would go back to the same spot, the, the, where it was in position to where I would park my four wheeler, wasn't an easy trek in because it was all knee high water. So it was very loud getting in and out. However, it was just a really, seemed like a really easy choice. (laughs) Like I'll just go back to where I was before. Absolutely. So I get in to my stand after parking the four wheeler and probably walking in maybe almost a mile through the water and climb up in this double ladder stand and I'm in position just hanging out and I don't, I don't know how old I was, maybe like 19 or 20. And you're all by yourself out there. Yeah, I was all by myself. My, um, I had my ex-husband and uh, a neighbor were also hunting nearby. And it was very quiet and still to the point like if you needed help, they could probably hear you yell from a distance. But I, I was sitting in the stand for at least 45 minutes to an hour and I hear something coming through the water. And that's typical in the Everglades. You know, you're hearing the kush, 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 kush. So I... I prop the gun up, get a rest, get, you know, in position to take the animal. And I see this tear running out and it's just, I mean, it's just hauling ass. It's, it's like, it's going like Mach 10 speed, like faster than I've ever seen a deer run. And I, I thought to myself, well, I need to stop it to try to shoot it. It was a doe. And I, I yelled at it like, Hey, 
try to get it stopped so I could get a proper shot. And it just kept going. And then all of a sudden behind it, I see this like strange looking creature. And it, it looks strange to me at the moment because I'd never really seen a black bear run in, in full speed. Sure, if they're, you know, just walking along or standing up, you know, they obviously would have been easier for me to pick out right away. And I'm 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 a little baffled by it. I'm like, what is that coming behind it? Was it fa- I mean they're fast as hell, right? They're so fast. And it it was like I, I can only do it with my hands so nobody can see this, but it was just like fully extending like both arms and just grabbing and running like mock ten speed behind this deer and it closed the gap right behind my stand and it caught the deer and it sounds like a giant dying rabbit um just squealing wailing you know complete like distress it it was very um very horrific really listening well, traumatizing, to traumatizing just so traumatizing i don't know if i'd ever be able to go in the woods again after hearing this <laughs> so, well but but there there is the perception that um, what we do as hunters is terrible and awful, but when you think about it in all reality, what was more awful for that deer being, you know, taken for food and put out of your misery quickly or being tortured and eating, eaten alive, Because that's nature. Bears but eat deer. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of things, uh, I was looking at bobcats the other day. I was thinking, oh, there's no way. Deer. They eat deer. That's, I mean, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. So, a lot of times they'll just eat out like their romp. Like that's what I in. saw. They're and just it's eating a waste. Out. It's I, a huge waste, but that's nature. It's unbelievable. So this, so pe- just so people know, I mean, bears eat deer. So what happened then? So, so I'm thinking like, oh my goodness, like this is crazy. Like this is like not geo, right? I just saw this doe run out at Mockton's that I couldn't stop and behind it is a Everglades black bear and it just caught the deer and like pummeled it and ate it essentially like right behind my stand it was it was insane so I texted my my dad um and that was back in the day when you know cell phones like you had to like press like three times for the three times yeah Yeah. for the sea so it, it took me a little while to text him Dad, I think I just saw something that was like totally Nat Geo out here. It was incredible. This bear just ate this deer behind my stand, and immediately he was worried because he grew up in the Everglades. He grew up hunting the Everglades, and and in all reality, a lot of those bears down there have never seen a human being. Right. I mean, I was in an area that was surrounded by sixty thousand acres of just straight up woods. You know, no human interaction or population as far as human beings. So uh, unless you were probably hunting or just nature walking, observing things. So I'm thinking like, uh, this is pretty crazy. Well, but regardless, the bear is eating the deer. It has no concern with me, right? Not thinking much of it. The bear drugged the deer closer to me, but I'm thinking, well, it's pretty occupied and maybe after it eats a little while, it'll leave and you know, it's not like, going to be hungry like tomorrow. <laughs> <No>. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Keep yeah, going. Keep no, going. <laughs> I, I could have used your like little b- tidbits of wisdom. So I hear something else coming and I'm like, semi excited. Like, okay, well maybe I'll finally get a shot at something and maybe it'll scare away. The shot will scare away the bear. That's like right behind my stand, still chomping, crushing bone that I can hear eating the deer. So here comes kush, 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 kush. I get the rifle up and ready and I look and it's two cubs that were like three quarters of the size of mama. Like there was certainly cubs that were very mature, you know, not 
we're not talking like little cuddly cubs. We're talking, you know, bears, 150 pound, 200 pound black bear. So I'm like, this is, this is, this is not good. This is really bad. So as they get a little bit closer, they hear mama back there and she's doing some sort of weird, like distress call, like a mwah, mwah, like weird bear call. They stand up on their back legs about 50 yards behind my stand at one point and called back to her until they finally met up. And then they just all started eating the deer. And then it was very loud. It was very loud for a very long time. Meanwhile, I changed my pants and I only had three bullets in my clip that because I had emptied everything out for safety reasons um, before I got back to camp. And I only had three bullets, period. So there are three bears. I have three bullets. I'm looking at this in a defense term. You know, I'm obviously not there to shoot a bear or bear hunt. It was completely illegal at the time. But if in defense of my own life, if I needed to, I'm thinking now, how is this going to play out with three bears and three bullets, the likelihood of you being able to to survive, you know, if all three of them are, are kind of going to attack you at the same time, it's very minimal and small. You're in your stand. How, are you up? Are you elevated? I'm about 30 feet high in, in a stand, but ex, still extremely exposed in a sense. I mean, I'm just... And they can climb I'm in, I'm in camo, but they can smell me more than likely. They can hear me and they can see me more than likely. Um, any kind of movement, you know, that's one thing that... You, as you get into hunting more and more, you'll find how important not moving really essentially can be mm-hmm. in certain times and it'll make or break, you know, a hunt. That's how animals pick you apart. Even if you are in full chemo, which certainly helps to break up your silhouette, it still doesn't, doesn't break up the movement necessarily. Um, so I'm trying to figure out like, how am I going to get out of here? And it was a very scary moment. I, waited and waited and waited until it got dark. And I finally let off a couple shots to hope that that some of the, the guys would come get me at some point. And I waited and waited. Were the bears still there when you shot yes, off? Yes, they were. They they never stopped eating the deer. It they, was that very, did not scare them at all, the shots? No. So eventually um, my ex-husband came through the cypress and I could hear him coming and I, I screamed to him like, stop, you know, and let him know what, what he was walking into. Because at that point, if I can hear him coming, the bears can hear him coming, of course. And you, you, there was no escaping any of it because I was surrounded by water. Even if I wanted to run away, you can't outrun the bear for one thing. And two, it's so incredibly noisy. There's no slipping out when you're in water. If if the minus the water part, I probably could have slipped out of there because they were so in tune to what they were doing. The the issue of being in the high water it it certainly just made the escape route impossible. So eventually, finally, a neighbor that was also hunting um, not too far off heard heard us yell for him to bring the four wheeler and to come get us, and and that's what happened. He. He picked us up. I literally like climbed on my stand onto the four-wheeler and we exited. And when we got just far enough away to like feel safe, he turned it off just to hear 
like if any of them were coming after us or even concerned with us being there and they were just still eating the deer. You could still hear them. They were so in tune to it. So it was, it was pretty terrifying. Like probably wouldn't have been as terrifying for me if there wasn't a cub mother situation involved, but they are even more territorial when you have that um, scenario. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? I don't know. Thank you for coming. I love you. I love you too. (laughs) 